Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags returned to action on Saturday after a long COVID layoff and absolutely dominated the Pepperdine Waves, scoring 117 points in a rout. I'm here to talk about that game and answer listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Monday to start your week off right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, ready to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the official sponsor of ESPN College Football. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. I also want to thank all of you who have continued to make this podcast your first listen of the day, and to those of you who have checked out the show on YouTube. Again, if you haven't done that yet, you just go to youtube.com, search Locked on Zags. The channel will pop up there, gives you the opportunity to hit that subscribe button. Please, please do so if you have not already, trying to continue to grow the Locked on Zags brand and doing it on YouTube is a great way to do so. Also, a reminder for any of you who want to get involved in Mailbag Monday and have not yet, it's super simple. You can reach out to me on Twitter at ScoreZagsScore or at LockedOnZags and just send your question to me that way. You can tag it Mailbag Monday if you'd like. You can send me a DM on Twitter. That works as well. Or you can email me at AndyPatton013 at gmail.com, a great way to ask multiple questions or to just start a dialogue or start a conversation. I'm always happy to respond to you all uh, if you reach out to me that way. All right, so we're going to get right into it. Segment one, we're talking Pepperdine. We're talking about that game. We're talking about some of the performances that stand out. This first question comes from TD Henry at TD Henry on Twitter, who says, with Timmy and Holmgren both with two fouls in the first half, why not give Greg and or Perry some minutes versus an overmatched Pepperdine team? Well, for starters, Caden Perry was out for this game. Uh, That was something that was kind of quietly announced before the game and didn't really get a ton of discussion during the broadcast or after the game. So I think a fair amount of people kind of missed that, but he's still still dealing with back injuries. It was not COVID related as far as I understand it, which is where I expected there to potentially be a player or two who missed the game, but that was not the case. Perry missed with back spasms. He's been out a couple of games already this season with that. You could understand that the team is not really in any hurry to rush him back. If he is feeling the effects of a back injury, it can be pretty debilitating and not the kind of thing that you want to push at all. So there was kind of, to to kind of counter your point, there was not really any reason to play a player who they didn't need in any capacity for this game. Uh, Regarding Ben Gregg, he played a lot in the second half, like a whole ton in the second half. And I think Gonzaga's thought process here was, yeah, they could have gone to Ben Gregg in the first half uh, when there was foul trouble for both Timmy and Holmgren, but also they knew he was going to play a lot in the second half, and I don't—I just don't think they were concerned with foul trouble. Like, I don't think it was a big deal to them that, oh, what if, what if Chet or Drew picks up a third foul in the first half? It just wasn't going to matter. So it's kind of, it, it's almost the opposite of what you're saying. I understand the sentiment, and in, in certain games, you'd like to have the ability to go to Ben Gregg or Caden Perry in the first half when there is foul trouble, and they haven't done that even against the Alabamas and the UCLA's and the Dukes of the world. Uh, And so I can understand why. Well, maybe do that in a game where you aren't as concerned about that. But I think the flip side of that is just 
They didn't need to. They weren't worried about Drew Timmy picking up a third foul. They knew he was going to sit for a huge chunk of the second half. So it just ultimately wasn't really an issue that I think they were they were concerned about for good reason. This next question, a similar note to that one. This one comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, you mentioned you would like the starters to stay in the 20-minute range in this game. There are many potential benefits to this. One of the very few drawbacks might be for Drew Timmy as it relates to the Player of the Year award. The budgeting of minutes seemed very much by design. Do you think this is what we can expect going forward? And is Drew Timmy still in the top five candidates for Player of the Year? So yeah, I think the minute stuff is something we're going to see a lot more of. Mark Few has shown more of a willingness to empty the bench earlier in games than he has in previous seasons. I don't know if that is by design, if it is because they just have the ability to do so because they have more depth than usual. If there are certain players they're trying to get more rest for, most notably I would think Chet Holmgren, who is a you know a player that you really want to make sure he stays healthy throughout the season, certainly. So, But I do expect to see the last 10 minutes of a lot of these games where Gonzaga jumps out to early leads. I don't know if we're ever going to see them jump out as quite as demonstrably as they did against Pepperdine in the first two minutes of that game, but there will be plenty of games that will be determined early in the second half, and when that happens, I expect a lot of Ben Gregg, Caden Perry, Hunter Salas, Nolan Hickman, and beyond that, I expect a lot of Martinez Orlauskas, Joe Few, Will Graves, Matthew Lang, all of those guys as well. Regarding Drew Timmy, to be honest, no, I do not think that he is currently a top five candidate for player of the year. I think he's a top 10 candidate for player of the year. And I don't think it's crazy at all that he, I don't think it's crazy to think he could still win it. I think he absolutely has the ability to do so. We saw him last year put together a good non-conference slate and then do even better in conference play and excellent in the NCAA tournament. There's no reason to believe he's not capable of doing that again this year. But as you mentioned, the minutes thing is a part of the deal. Players right now, in my mind, who are top candidates for player of the year are guys who are playing 33, 35 minutes per night, and their team is nothing without them. The top player right now for player of the year is Johnny Davis for Wisconsin. And no disrespect to the rest of Wisconsin's team, but there have been a couple games that Johnny Davis did not play, and this team is nowhere close to a top 25 team without Johnny Davis. He is so pivotal to that team's success. So for me, how do you judge a Drew Timmy who is very, very talented and is pivotal to Gonzaga's success, but they're not going to look that bad without him because of the emergence of Anton Watson, because of Chet Holmgren's presence, because they have good, talented guard play. It's just, it's a different feel. So for me, Johnny Davis, the top guy, you also have Kofi Cockburn from Illinois. He's having a great year. Ben Thurin from Arizona, obviously one of Tommy Lloyd's guys having a great season as well. EJ Liddell from Ohio State, who I believe, I'm recording this on Sunday afternoon, I believe the last update I saw was he scored 17 points before the first media timeout of Ohio State's game today, which is absolutely absurd. Hard to not have that guy in the conversation. Keegan Murray at Iowa rounds out my top five. This was kind of more or less off the top of my head. I'd have to do some more research before, you know, actually submitting a ballot were I to have one. But Drew Timmy is right in that conversation. Wendell Moore from Dukes in that conversation. Ochai Agbaji from Kansas. I, I hope I pronounced that correctly. He's in that conversation. There are a handful of other guys, of course, Bancaro, Jaden Ivey, Chet Holmgren, of course, are all part of that conversation as well. This next question, again, similar topic. We're kind of focusing on rotation minutes a little bit here in the first segment. This one comes from Theodore via Gmail. He says, do you think any of the current Gonzaga players are at risk for leaving via the transfer portal? I think Coach V was not giving enough minutes to some of the bench players like Hickman, Salas, Greg, and Perry. 
Are they, and they could transfer like Umar Balo or Aaron Cook. So, yeah, I, the transfer portal is such a, a beast right now with thousands of players going into the transfer portal every single season. I think it would be foolish to assume that nobody on Gonzaga's roster is even considering transferring or is at any risk of that. But I don't see any of these players fitting very strongly into the transfer conversation. I'll go through them one by one just to kind of give my thoughts on them individually. Uh, Nolan Hickman, I think there's virtually no chance that he transfers because I think that he's either Gonzaga next year or he's in the NBA. I think there's only about a 50% chance that he's in a Gonzaga uniform next year. But again, I think it's like a less than 2% chance that he decides to transfer somewhere else. I think if he wanted to stay another year in college and work on his game and you know improve his NBA draft stock, he would just do that by coming back to Gonzaga on a roster that's not going to have Andrew Nembhard or Rasir Bolton. So for me, he's a virtually a non, there's a 0% chance that he's going to transfer. Next, Caden Perry. I think there's really limited chance here. Like slightly more than 1% chance, I guess, that Caden Perry is going to transfer. And my main reasoning there is because he's had all these injury issues and he hasn't really proven himself at all. And I just don't think that he would get himself into a very like an ideal situation. I think the best case scenario for him to develop as a college basketball player is at Gonzaga. And I think he knows that he's not going to go play professionally yet. He's not ready to do that. He hasn't played enough college basketball games. He's got an opportunity to be in a bigger role next year. Obviously a part of that conversation depends on whether Drew Timmy returns, but Chet Holmgren will not return. Drew Timmy probably will not return, although it's not certain. If both those guys are gone, you have Anton Watson coming back, and then you have Ben Gregg and Caden Perry. So he's going to have a big role next year. So I don't really really think that he would make the decision to transfer. I don't think it would make a lot of sense for him. Greg, mostly the same situation. I could see him maybe, maybe a little bit more likely because obviously he hasn't dealt with injury issues and he's shown flashes of what kind of player he's capable of being. So there's an opportunity for him to put his name in there and go to another high profile school where he'd play big minutes right away. The only way Ben Gregg would transfer, and I think this is still very unlikely, I want to be clear and say that, but I think the only way Ben Gregg would transfer is if Drew Timmy did decide to come back. And then he felt like, hey, I don't want to spend another season. It would be his third year, even though he's a sophomore next year. It would be his third season uh, playing in a reserve role. He'd still have a bigger role next year, which is why I ultimately think he's going to come back. He also is like a zag through and through, committed as soon as he got an offer from this school. His family went to Gonzaga. He has family who lives in Spokane. So I think he's pretty unlikely to to leave as well. And then Salas is the last player I have listed. I guess he is the quote-unquote most likely to transfer. But again, I think he's in the Nolan Hickman kind of bucket where he's more likely to take his chances to play professionally rather than he is going to transfer to another school. Because again, next year's roster, he's assuming he comes back, which I I am assuming so, he's going to be probably the starting combo guard and he's going to play a big role next season. Huge. All of these guys committed to Gonzaga knowing that there was not an immediate amount of playing time for them. It doesn't mean that they're not frustrated not playing. I'm sure that in some on some days, it's tough. I'm sure that Hunter Salas wanted to play more than four minutes against UCLA. Who can blame him? I don't blame him for feeling that way at all, as long as he doesn't let it impact the team, which by all accounts is not a situation that has arisen in any capacity. But for Salas, I think if he wanted to be done with Gonzaga... He would go pro. He's such a high-level athlete and so dynamic that I think teams would take a chance on him, even if he hasn't 
played a significant role and proven exactly what he's capable of just yet. But more than likely, he comes back next year. He's Gonzaga's one of their two or three best players next year and parlays that into a really nice spot in the NBA draft. Next question comes from Dad Risk on Twitter. He says, is Timmy or Chet more important to this team? I feel like if we had a backcourt of the caliber of last year's team, it would be Chet and it wouldn't be close. But the scoring we need from Timmy on this team makes it really close for me. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty interesting question uh, and, and one that I thought about quite a bit and kind of, I actually waffled on my answer. I changed it multiple times because I do think that it's really close. And I think that you could make a reasonable argument for either player. Part of it is for me, when, when I think about more important to this team, I think which team is better, this team without Chet Holmgren or this team without Drew Timmy? And I think right now, I think this team is better with Chet Holmgren, meaning he is more valuable to this team. And I think that that's maybe not going to be the, the opinion shared by everybody. Like I said, I think you can make an argument for both sides. But the primary reason that I say this is because of Anton Watson. And we'll talk about him in the next question a little bit more. But Watson, what he has done this season as a low post scorer, he, you know, he led Gonzaga in scoring against Pepperdine. He shot 58% from the field. He's an efficient low post scorer. He is not as good of an offensive player as Drew Timmy. And I do not want to imply that that's what I'm saying. He's not there yet. But he is a similar offensive player to Drew Timmy. He's just a not quite as refined, polished version of that. Nobody on this roster, including Anton Watson, does what Chet Holmgren does defensively. Anton Watson is elite defensively, but he is not elite in the way that Chet Holmgren is. He is not a rim protector. Caden Perry is probably the next best rim protector on this team, and he's not nearly at that level. And that's not even a slight to him. It's just Chet is otherworldly as a rim protector on this team. And so Watson can capably replace what Drew Timmy does on offense. And if Drew Timmy weren't there, you'd see more of either Ben Gregg or Caden Perry. And both those guys are adequate offensive players. Without Chet Holmgren on this roster, you just you do not replace that production under the basket. Offensively, he's he's still working on stuff. He's still developing as an outside shooter, particularly in the half court sets. He's still, you know, he still has some work to do there. And you could replace his offensive production fairly easily, but you could not replace what he does defensively. So that's why I'm going to go with Chet, even though I think there's a pretty reasonable argument for both sides. And then next question, like I said about Anton Watson, this one comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, Anton played the most minutes, took the most shot attempts, and had the most points of any of the Zags on Saturday against Pepperdine. If you look at Timmy and Watson's stat line side by side, they are nearly identical. This is what I was alluding to in the last question. He goes on. He says, the reason I point out shot attempts is because this allows for a third big who can cause immense matchup problems for opponents to add to a team that already has great depth. You've spoken on this before, but give us a few more thoughts. Yeah, Christian, you really covered a lot of the points there really adequately. Watson's Aggression on offense is something that we have been celebrating for weeks here at Locked on Zags and throughout Gonzaga Twitter sphere because it is something that we've been waiting to see from this Spokane product for years and years since he was at G Prep, you know, and he had the shoulder injury his freshman year. It lingered into his sophomore year, and we didn't see a player who was comfortable, comfortable offensively on this team. Now we have. And what he's developed into is a player who's hyper-efficient around the rim, who's aggressive in finding his own shot, who's good at fighting through contact, still finishing. He had a couple and ones in this game. He's been extraordinarily good. I have maintained strongly 
that I believe he is capable of being one of the 10 best players in the country. I received some pushback on that thought uh, for the record, and I understand where it comes from and that he doesn't fit traditionally kind of that mold. But his impact defensively on this on this team is so significant and it's hard to measure in a lot of traditional statistical ways and it's hard to measure in the eye test and so you have to look at some of the advanced analytics but some of the advanced numbers uh, some of the places that do player raider da- player raider data have showed him already being one of the 20 best players in the country and this is with him only just scratching the surface of what he's capable of being offensively so when you look at his potential role next year without Drew Timmy without Chad Holmgren you have a guy who's going to get a much higher usage rate. He's going to if he continues to be as efficient as he has been this year, which is asking a lot. It's, there's no there's no guarantee that he will be, but if he's close to that efficient and maintains his ability defensively, he's going to be really 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 good. I stand by that sentiment because I think he has the skill set, the size, the athleticism, the basketball IQ, uh, and potentially the usage rate next season to be extraordinarily good. The next in a long line of elite Gonzaga performers. All right, next question. This one comes from John via Gmail. He says, who do you envision as the starters for the 2022-2023 team? And who do you envision as the players in the rotation? John put out some caveats knowing that a lot of this is going to be hard for me to know, which is obviously very true. But I I don't mind hard questions. You guys can challenge me with some of these more difficult questions. Uh, I've mentioned on the show a handful of times the players that I think are kind of right on that 50-50 line. You know, Chet Holmgren's 100% gone. Andrew Nimhart and Rasir Bolton are over 95% gone. Drew Timmy's probably 60% gone, although we'll get there in a second. Uh, and then Nolan Hickman and Julian Strother, in my mind, are the two biggest, like, straight-up 50-50 toss-ups. It depends on how the rest of the season goes for either of those guys. But here is my my first take at what I think the roster will look like next season. Starting five, starting at center, Drew Timmy. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say that I think he comes back. Um, I, I'm... If I'm wrong about this, I'm wrong about this. I I will be totally content with being wrong about this. If he goes to the NBA, I would not blame him. But I think there's a chance he comes back. And so I think the starting five would be Drew Timmy, Anton Watson, Julian Strother, who in this I'm saying he comes back as well. And a Timmy Watson Strother front court is (laughs) really, really good. You you can just look at this year's team and know how good that would be with the backcourt of Hunter Salas and Dominic Harris. That is right. I would be predicting in this that Nolan Hickman does declare for the NBA draft after his freshman season and gets selected, so he would be gone. But a starting five of Timmy Watson, Strother, Salas, and Harris, it's gonna it's gonna be just fine. I'm not gonna have too many reservations about that. The rotation beyond that, Caden Perry and Ben Gregg in this situation would both still be backups, but they would both be playing more minutes. Obviously, they would be soaking up some of the minutes that would be vacated by Chet Holmgren being gone. Uh, Transfer guard would certainly be a piece here as well, uh, somebody who could potentially challenge Dom for that starting spot as well, uh, or somebody who at least is going to play a significant amount of minutes. Think like an Aaron Cook-style guard uh, in this case. And then I put Anthony Black or incoming freshman guard. Anthony Black is, is... Wishful thinking. It's very optimistic. Hopefully he does decide to come to Gonzaga, but I know a lot of people have him at Oklahoma State, potentially Baylor as well. Gonzaga is not considered the favorite by most outlets at this point, but you never know. If it's not black, I think Gonzaga will pivot and they'll go find another guard to be at least in right inside or right outside the rotation. And then a couple other guys on the team, Braden Huff, Martinez Orlowskis, obviously Joe Few, you know, those guys will be back as well. All right, we got more listener-submitted questions to discuss in the second segment. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. Built Bar is the best-tasting protein bar ever, plain and simple. 
It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Bilt Bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bilt Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bilt Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BiltBar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your first order. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zach, still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. This first question comes from Aaron via Gmail. He says, in looking toward conference play, which teams other than BYU, St. Mary's, and San Francisco could give Gonzaga the most trouble based on matchups? So yeah, I'm going to say this right now. I don't think Gonzaga is going to lose to anybody in the WCC outside of those three teams. The WCC is better top to bottom than it has been in years past. I don't think it's as top heavy as it has always been, but I don't. I think those are the teams that have the best opportunity to dethrone Gonzaga. If there is another team that would do it, in my mind, it's going to be Santa Clara. Santa Clara has Jalen Williams, an outstanding guard, averaging 19 points per game, has just been extraordinary all season long. They also have Yusuf Vrankic, who is a big man. The only way to really beat Gonzaga is to have big dudes who are capable of slowing down Gonzaga. That's why I think San Francisco and St. Mary's have the best chance of actually beating Gonzaga this year because they have size and they have depth on the front court. Santa Clara doesn't really have that. Vrankic is good. They don't have a lot of depth behind him. Williams and Vrankic are good enough that Gonzaga is going to have to play a good game to beat Santa Clara. They they can't just completely coast to secure a victory there. But I, I still don't think it's going to be overly challenging for them. And I still think they're the best of the bunch. LMU is the next best. They're good. Eli Scott is super talented. Damian Douglas is a good young player. But I don't think that they have enough firepower to beat Gonzaga, even unless Gonzaga really shoots themselves in the foot. All right, this next question comes from John via Gmail. He says, how do you rank the top five programs on the West Coast? Well, I wrote about it. In fact, I wrote about the top 25 programs on the West Coast for an article for Ducks Wire, which is through USA Today about the Oregon Ducks. It's one of my other freelance gigs that I do. I wrote an article, the top 25 West Coast basketball power rankings. It published on Saturday afternoon. I will post a link to this on Twitter. I have already. It's You can still find it there. I'll post it in the show notes as well. But here were my top five. Number one, Gonzaga. Number two, Arizona. Number three, UCLA. Number four, USC. In my mind, that's fairly ironclad. There are some debates that you can have about location. You could probably put UCLA above Arizona. A lot of people would do that, and I think that's completely defensible. But I don't think you can put either any of those teams above Gonzaga just yet. And I don't think you can put USC above either Arizona or UCLA. Even though they're undefeated, I, I think they're still fourth in that group. Now, fifth is tough. On the initial article that published on Saturday, I had Colorado State. Then Colorado State got their bell rung by San Diego State. They got beat by 30 by the Aztecs. Colorado State was undefeated going into that game and got crushed. So I don't think you can have them there. You could argue that San Diego State should jump all the way up to fifth. For me, I'm going to put USF in that fifth spot. I think they're better than St. Mary's. I think they're better than BYU. I think they're better than San Diego State and Colorado State, although it's very close. All of those schools could kind of bunch together. I think the five through 10 spots could be 
you could argue to, to put them in a lot of different orders and, and none of them are necessarily wrong. But for me, I'm going to put USF in the fifth spot. They have a ton of depth. They have a really sound offense. They have great guards in Khalil Shabazz, who had a monster game against San Diego this weekend, and Jamari Bouye, who's a future NBA player. They have size Maslaski. I'm sure I mispronounced that. I apologize. He is outstanding as a big man for this team. They're, they're really deep all the way down, and Todd Golden's a great coach, and so I think I'm going to stick them on the five line for right now. Next question comes from Barry at Navy Zag. He says, what do you think the chances are that the WCC pushes the tournament to match with the Power 5 schedule so there's an extra week to catch up postponed games at the beginning of conference play? I think very slim. Uh, I can understand why this would make some sense. Obviously, the WCC has always played one of the first tournaments, conference tournaments in all of college basketball. It's something that a lot of Gonzaga fans have had consternation about previously because they thought that Gonzaga's long break between games potentially contributed to them having some slow starts. They've made the Sweet 16 however many years in a row, so I don't think that it's clearly something that is impacting them too much. But I did look at the Orleans event calendar just out of my own curiosity, and there is nothing on the Orleans Arena schedule for the weekend after the WCC tournament, so I suppose it's possible that they could bump it back. I don't think from a TV perspective, which is a lot of money for the WCC, I don't think they want to compete with the Pac-12. I don't think they want to compete having those two tournaments at the same time in terms of like walk-in traffic for the games as well. So I really don't think this is something that the WCC wants to do. I think they're far, far, far more likely to just find ways to add a lot of games on Tuesdays. <laughs> so the games are Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays. And then maybe the next week is you don't have an extra game. And then the week after that, you go Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday. I, most teams only miss two games. I, I think it's very possible for them to find ways to get all of these games added back into the calendar over the next seven or so weeks without having to push the tournament back. All right, this next question comes from Christian via Gmail. He said, I had the St. Mary's versus BYU game on on Saturday, and it was truly a tale of two tempos. Can you discuss the vast difference in regards to pace of play and what factors you think dictate which team is most successful in determining pace of play? The stat that came up in the St. Mary's game is that St. Mary's was 0 for 3 and now 0 for 4 when they do not score 60 or more points. That speaks to the necessity of offensive efficiency in the Randy Bennett system. What would you say are the key factors in Gonzaga's preferred pace? Yeah, so I've always been an advocate for giving your team more opportunities to score, not less, for the exact reason that was mentioned here. Randy Bennett's offense is predicated on you scoring at a really high rate per possession. You have to. In order to win on St. Mary's roster, because they take so long to get their shots up, because they play the, a style of defense that forces the opposing team to take a long time before they get good looks, you have to be more efficient than the other team. We have seen this strategy work. Randy Bennett and his team stifled Gonzaga in Vegas in a WCC tournament recently, held them to 45 points. They're capable of beating just about anybody in the country when this strategy works. But I have said this before, and I will say it again. This team is also capable of losing to just about anybody. When this doesn't work, you are susceptible to losing to even the worst college basketball teams. It is a high, high-risk medium reward strategy as a coach that I I would not want to implement. 
This year's roster for St. Mary's, I've been high on them this year, and I'm, I'm wavering after watching that BYU game as well because they don't have the high-efficiency scoring needed to make this offense work. When they had Jock Landale or Omar Samhan or Rob Jones or some of those players who were highly efficient scorers around the basket, even some of their highly efficient guards like Emmett Nahr, when they had those guys or Matthew Dellavedova, they could succeed. But this year's roster is much more guys who are high-volume scorers. You know, Jordan Ford was a high-volume scorer before he graduated. Tommy Cousy is a high-volume scorer. You can see why it's not working because those guys don't have the ability to become high-volume scorers because there's not enough volume to go around. For the Zags, the up-tempo, you mentioned what what are the factors for them. Um, more turnovers. Uh, a more up-tempo offense is going, to, is going to naturally lead to more turnovers. So finding ways to limit that as best as possible. It means having guards who are very, very careful with the basketball, which is something that Mark View has really prioritized in his recruiting, which is critical. You know, is why when Andrew Nempard was having turnover issues, it was so startling is because that's not normally something that Gonzaga guards struggle with because of the way that they recruit. Uh, you also see more turnovers that lead to easy buckets for the opposing team. Uh, and then you see guys get get a little flustered when, when they're trying to go at a really fast tempo and they're unable to, when teams work really, really hard to stop Gonzaga from scoring in transition, it can fluster them. Tarleton State really executed this well. Among a lot of other things that Tarleton State did well in that game, not letting Gonzaga get out in transition was a huge problem. It flustered Gonzaga's guards. It forced them to run half-court offense 100% of the time, and they struggled because of it. Neither strategy, both strategies have their issues, obviously. There's there's no perfect strategy in college basketball. Somebody would have figured it out by now if there was, but I would rather err on the side of getting your team more shots than less. All right, this final question for the segment here. This comes from Aaron via Gmail. He says, I know that before Pacific and BYU joined the WCC, the conference schedule was run like the Pac-12 and having travel pairings based on location. Why did they stop doing that? And has there been talk of going back to it? I prefer that format in that it seems to make travel easier and less frequent and just gives the schedule a cleaner look that makes sense rather than randomized. Well, yeah, you, you answered why it happened, uh, BYU. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to blame them 100%, but... But like, I mean, if you, anybody, I mean, you all know what the map looks like. If you look at a map, BYU sticks out like a sore thumb. And Gonzaga's a close second. They stick out as well. But Gonzaga and Portland was a natural pairing of travel partners, the two most northern teams in the conference. And so they, they were able to travel together and travel into the Bay Area and kind of lock up those teams and travel down south and lock up those teams. And it kind of made sense. And then adding BYU kind of threw a wrench into everything. So in terms of going back to it, they probably will, or there's a good chance that they will, I should say, when BYU leaves. Now, I don't know who the WCC is going to add when BYU leaves. I don't know that there's not going to be more changes that happen between now and then involving Gonzaga, not involving Gonzaga. I have no idea. But let's just, we're going to do an exercise here real quick. If Gonzaga, or excuse me, if BYU, when BYU leaves, if the WCC adds Grand Canyon, which is a school that is often discussed for being in a, you know, they're in an inferior conference now in the WAC. They are a good basketball school, or at least a decent basketball school, and they're geographically makes sense. So let's assume that that happens. Then you have pretty natural partners for everybody. Gonzaga and Portland would go back to being partners. USF and Pacific would be partners. Santa Clara, St. Mary's would be partners. Very easy. Pepperdine, LMU would be partners. And then San Diego and Grand Canyon. It's not great. <laughs> they're, they're not that close to each other, but it's better. 
Gonzaga and Portland, frankly, aren't that close to each other either, and it would still work. So I think it's possible that it comes back to doing this in time eventually. Uh, it's not going to happen before BYU leaves. And even after BYU leaves, there's no, I wouldn't say it's a guarantee that it's going to happen either. But I think certainly if it makes sense geographically for them to do it, they're going to find a way to do it. All right, two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions in the third and final segment. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about GetUpside. Hey, Zags fans, Andy Patton here with an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about, GetUpside. My listeners are making up to $0.25 for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code SCORE and you get a $0.25 per gallon bonus on your first fill up. That's up to $0.50 cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free and use promo code SCORE to get up to $0.50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two dollars to $300 a month in cash back, and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code SCORE to get up to $0.50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. All right, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags. We're here in segment three, still going through listeners' submitted questions for Mailbag Monday. This next one comes from John. John writes, Should Gonzaga fans be concerned that Arizona will now be able to recruit players either from high school or the transfer market that might have normally gone to Gonzaga in the past? Now that Tommy is there, how much more competition will Gonzaga have from Arizona on the recruiting front? I asked this question because, one, Tommy is a great recruiter, a great coach, and a player's coach. Two, Arizona is playing very good basketball that I expect will continue. Three, Arizona plays a very similar style of basketball, as does Gonzaga. Four, Arizona is in a power conference. And five, the weather is better in the winter. I think a lot less recruits care about weather than a lot of people think that they do, so I'm just going to throw that out there right now. But to answer the question overall... Yes, Gonzaga is probably going, or excuse me, Arizona is probably going to recruit more similarly to Gonzaga than they did under Sean Miller. That is almost certainly true. Sean Miller did not recruit a lot of the same types of players that Gonzaga did. That was just a fact of those two programs. They were very competitive on the court. I don't think they were hyper competitive with each other out on the recruiting trail. But Tommy is going to be. Tommy has, you know, he he learned most of what he knows about coaching from Mark Few. He knows what kind of players to look for. He knows the kind of players that Mark is going to want because that was his job for decades is to find the kind of players that Mark would want. So it's it's understanding that that is going to happen. I think they rarely overlapped. Now they're going to overlap. What I'm curious in is how much of Tommy's recruiting is going to be done overseas because that was a huge pillar of who he was at Gonzaga was their primary international recruiter the reason for players like Roni Turioff and you know the Canadians Kevin Pangos and Shemek Karnowski and DeMontis Sabonis and so on and so forth but I don't I, I Gonzaga has seemed to go away from that in part because Lloyd left I would imagine but also even the last few years before Tommy left they weren't bringing in a ton of high profile international recruits obviously Rui was the most recent really really good international recruit but you look at Jalen Suggs you look at Chet Holmgren like obviously guys who are recruited domestically. And I think with Brian Michelson, who does a lot more stateside recruiting, I think that's going to be more of their focus. So if Tommy leans really hard into recruiting internationally, then there may not be that much overlap. 
I still think there's going to be some, not enough for me to panic about Gonzaga's future. I, I'm not, I don't think Tommy's going to just absorb all of the players that Gonzaga would have wanted. I think that Gonzaga still has a significant pull. Uh, I think that it, it will take Tommy a few years of consistently great recruiting before this would be something that would really, really impact Gonzaga's recruiting abilities, I think. I, I don't think it's going to happen right away, I guess is what I mean. But I do think that it's something to monitor, certainly, and something that could impact it's just going to make Gonzaga's job a little bit harder. I think they're capable of doing it. It's just going to be a little bit more difficult. All right, next question comes from Christian via Gmail. It says, I thought your comment about rankings mattering less was telling as it related to Georgia. Shout out Aaron Cook Jr. Getting votes in the AP poll they should not have received. Ken Palm has Baylor and Gonzaga as one and two. And it is very possible that by the time this podcast is available that they will be in order. In, that will be their order in one of the polls. But here we are again, Baylor and the Zags. Is it a little different in that there are seven or eight other teams that are very much in the mix? Who is your surprise team nationally? Yeah, so, yeah, the, the AP poll, I've never taken it too seriously, especially early in the year, even later in the year. It only really matters whether if Gonzaga's going to get a one seed or a two seed, which the last few years has barely even been a question. But, you know, I, I just, I, I'm not somebody who's overly concerned about where the AP voters consider Gonzaga at this point in the season. In terms of my surprise team nationally, Iowa State is probably my pick. I was not expecting them to be very good at all. They've been a top 25 team throughout majority of the season. We're undefeated for a very long time. Wisconsin, yes, I, I think you mentioned them. They are somebody that I wasn't expecting to be quite this good. Uh, but I also think you got to toss Arizona in there. You know, I, I had faith in Tommy Lloyd, certainly, but this has been incredible what this team has been able to do. And then I think USC, sticking with the, the Pac-12, sticking with the West Coast, uh, I thought they would be fine, but they lost Evan Mobley from last year's roster. They didn't bring in any super high-level talented players to replace him, and they're one of two undefeated teams remaining in the country. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty good deal for for the Trojans. So I think those are kind of the two teams that I would toss in there as well. All right, this next question comes from Aaron via Gmail. He says, which teams are most difficult to travel to each year based on location oddness or uh, or the arena or fans fired up to take on Gonzaga? So I picked three, and I'm I'm sorry that I did not pick anything very unique here. The three schools that I picked are BYU, St. Mary's, and San Francisco. Uh, BYU is rough, obviously, because the Marriott Center is huge, and the majority of places that Gonzaga goes to play are either neutral sort neutral site courts that are super super big or if they're playing somebody truly on the road a true road game the arena is usually very small BYU is a rare exception where it is a true road game at a huge huge location and BYU fans pack the house so that's probably the toughest arena that Gonzaga plays in on a regular basis War Memorial used to give Gonzaga fits. That's where the University of San Francisco plays. They used to lose there every single year, and then they kind of went on a nice run where they've been more successful. It's not going to be easy this year. That's a good USF team in War Memorial. It's not a big gym, but the place gets packed, and they really let them have it there. And then St. Mary's, same thing. The gym is so small and so high school-esque, and I don't even, I'm not even trying to say that as an insult. It's just a small high school-looking gym, and that place, if you've ever seen it on TV, I mean, there are people falling out of their seats because it is packed to the brim with people who passionately dislike Gonzaga. That's what college basketball is about. I love it. Those are the hardest places for this team to play, at least in conference. I'm sure they've run into some very, very ugly fan bases in other places that have given them a lot of hell, but those are the ones in conference play that give them the most trouble. All right, a couple more questions today regarding our Zags in the NBA or future. 
Zags in the NBA. This one comes from Jim on Facebook. He says, what NBA lottery team is the best fit for Chet? So lottery team, kind of all of them. <laughs> That's a bit of a cop-out. I'll go into more detail, certainly. Uh, but it's hard to not want a guy like this. You know, he's he's so long. He's so athletic. He's such a good rim protector already. He's a developing outside shooter. The skills that he have translate so well to the modern NBA. There's only two teams I can think of definitively that that couldn't use him as much as other teams. And those two teams are Cleveland with Evan Mobley and Utah with Rudy Gobert. Neither of those teams are going to be picking in the lottery, barring a very surprise second half of the NBA season. So I, I don't think they're really ones to concern yourself about. Uh, I wrote this these notes earlier today saying Detroit would be a great fit. And then I found out that they traded for Bull Bull, which doesn't mean that Chet's no longer a fit there. Bull Bull, I don't think, is that good of an NBA player yet. But Bull Bull is a seven-foot, super lengthy, skinny center who can shoot threes. So clearly Detroit thought on the similar lines to what I was thinking. Now, Bull's not a rim protector. In fact, he's a he struggles defensively, so I think they could still use him. Uh, Chet would be a great rim runner alongside Kate Cunningham. If they held on to K- Kelly Olenek, well, he's under a three-year contract, so Kelly would be a little good mentor for Chet for the first couple of years. I think that could be a really good pairing. Houston would be great. I think it'd be interesting to see how he pairs alongside Jalen Green and, and Kevin Porter Jr. And then, of course, Orlando. Can't not pick Orlando. The Jalen Suggs to Chet Holmgren connection would be back. Orlando has seemed to prioritize getting a lot of young guards in the last couple of years of the NBA draft. So adding a big like Chet Holmgren to Jalen Suggs, to Franz Wagner, really incredible trio that that team would have uh, for the future. And then the last question of the show is the second one from Theodore via Gmail. He says, do you believe Corey Kispert will become a long-term successful player in the NBA? I have been watching the NBA more this year just to see him play, and so far I think he is doing better than I expected. I was awaiting him to not succeed at the NBA level, but I think I was completely wrong. What are your thoughts on his game and potential? Yeah, I think a lot of people who've been watching Corey Kispert, uh, at least up until the last few games, were feeling the opposite of you, where they were feeling like he was not doing as well as they expected him to do. He he broke out in a big way at that game against the Knicks at Madison Square Garden, scored 20 points. Made all of his threes in that game. Really outstanding performance. But yeah, I mean, six, seven dudes who can shoot the three as well as he can uh, and are as athletic as he are are, are going to find success in the NBA. I understand that there are some shortcomings. He's not a great defensive player. Uh, he's not an elite athlete. He's a good athlete, even by NBA standards. I think he's a capable athlete, but he's not above average. He's not elite in that regard. His ball handling skills are fine, but not great. That's not what he's being asked to do. His role on this team is to move without the basketball, get the basketball, and then shoot the basketball. <laughs> that, that is his role. And in the NBA, if you can do that, you're going to have a long and successful career. And that's what I think is going to happen with Corey Kispert. I don't think he's going to be a high-level starter. I think he's more like the eighth man on a really good team, eighth or ninth man on a really good team. And on bad teams or below average teams, he's a sixth, seventh man. Maybe he masquerades as a starter for a while on some not so good teams. That's kind of where I think he kind of resides. But I think he'll play, you know, as long as he stays healthy, I think he'll play 10 years in the NBA, just bombing a bunch of threes and being adequate at every other part of the game. Like there's no reason in my mind, that he's not capable of, of being that kind of player for a very long time. And so far, he had a rough start, but what you've seen from him lately the last few weeks has kind of showed that he's he's more than capable of playing consistently at this level. All right, that is going to do it for today. Got a pair of guests lined up for this week to talk 
a lot of Gonzaga related topics. Of course, hopefully we won't have any more game cancellations, which will slow us, which slowed us down a little bit the last couple of weeks. Got BYU on Thursday, so definitely be prepared to talk a lot about that all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts soon to be or available now on YouTube as well. Go to youtube.com, search Locked On Zags, hit that subscribe button if you have not already. Finally, thank you to those of you who make this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked On Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening and go Zags.